We have a family football league. Uh, I mean, not football league. Um, <laughs> we do have that. We have a fantasy league in the fall. But we have a bracket that we've set up and did just with the family. And every, we invited our boys to be in it for the very first time. They're age three and five. And um, Graham has a unique strategy. He's three years old, and we let him be in. And so we'd ask him, we'd tell him the two teams, say, here's these two teams that are going to be facing on what, which do you pick? And what he would do is pick whoever sounded like the bad guys. And he did that all the way through. And he would sit and he would think about it for a second and say, Wildcats, they sound pretty mean. Let's go with it. So he did that all the way through. He is leading right now. (laughs) Up until last night, and he's the only one who picked Michigan State. I mean, he's gone all the way. And I think, a three-year-old just beat us, you know. And that's kind of the way... Um, that it works sometimes, you know? And isn't life kind of like that, too? A little segue here. Uh, I think that's the way. You know, sometimes you think, well, but that's not fair, or we put so much thought into this, or we did that. We're going to look at something kind of like that today, because sometimes all of our best efforts and all of our thinking, we make it all so complicated, and God just calls us back to the simplicity of the gospel, I'm on the board, uh, just honored to be on a couple of different ministry boards. One of those is Calvary Road Ministries, um, which started right here with John Shepherd, uh, who was pastor at First Pigeon Forge and then at Chihuahua Hills and passed away just uh, a couple of years ago uh, with cancer. But he began this ministry, outreach to Africa, particularly upon, um, uh, with, among the Maasai people. And we had a board meeting this week. And what we did is a a few years ago, a couple years ago, you remember, um, because the funding is just so down across the board uh, in our denomination as well as other denominations that we had to make really hard decisions with the International Mission Board. And we brought home 800 missionaries. Uh, We had to bring 800 missionaries off the field, and that was just the only way we could do that, you know, financially. So what happened is a lot of people who were, you know, getting close to retirement years chose to to take kind of a package that would give them early retirement. One of those guys was a guy named David Crane, and we grabbed him up really quickly uh, with Calvary Road Ministries, and now he is uh, very, very involved in our ministry. Now, David has a real heart for for Kenya, for Tanzania, for Zambia, the areas we've been involved in. But what's really on his heart have been those in Sudan, in the Sudanese, you know, in the refugee camps there. And that's just where he has worked and ministered for so long. And I know you've heard about this place on the news, and you've, you, you, you hear different things, but it kind of remains a little bit abstract to us, and we think, what is that? It's 280,000 people from different tribes and different nations, oftentimes they hate each other as much as they hate being there. Uh, And they're all living together in this one place. And David was telling me about something just really, really beautiful. I wanted to tell you about that happened. Um, In one of these African towns, we have a pastor there who is very passionate and uh, just ministering, leading people to Christ. Well, the local imams um, f- knew about this guy, and he's just a constant irritant. They didn't like the success he was having, the influence in his community, especially, particularly among Muslim people. 
So they have connections and they work this out. You know, and anyway, he was arrested. His computer was confiscated and he was taken to jail. And of course, we're all alarmed and we're, you know, we just began to pray for this guy to be released. Lord, would you release this pastor uh, from, from this prison? And God, just the place where you've put him. And here's the pastor's response. He said, don't pray for me to be released before you pray, I will be faithful in jail. Pray that I will be faithful while I'm here. So everybody changed the direction of their prayers and just began to pray, oh God, help him to be faithful where you've put him in this prison. He ended up staying in prison for three months. During that three months, he led 12 Muslim men to Christ and was able during that time to disciple them. And as he and these men are being released one by one and scattered all throughout these African villages and towns and cities, something beautiful is beginning to happen. God interrupted his ministry to give him a ministry. And it all hinged on the fact that he was willing to be in the moment, to die to the life that he had, and the dangerous ministry he was already involved in just got even riskier. He was willing to walk in that direction to see the kingdom of God just explode in a place where Christianity is growing twice as fast as it is here in our country. There will be a day when we will have African missionaries coming here, and it's already beginning to happen. The tables are turning. I want to read to you a story that um, has a lot to do with that. The fact that we, not just as Americans, but even as American Christians, sometimes have a hard time you know, as Kevin mentioned a moment ago, and as we were worshiping, of letting go and just letting God be God in and through our lives. Because there's other things that, that come up in importance and in priority. Here's a story of one of those guys that Jesus encountered. This is in Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to begin in verse 11 because this, uh, or excuse me, 13, because this is kind of connected to the bigger part of the story. It's all, you know, like one event. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so that he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples told them not to bother him. But when Jesus saw what was happening, he was very displeased with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, anyone who doesn't have their kind of faith will never get into the kingdom of God. You might want to highlight that and go back and look at it later. Then he took the children into his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. As he was starting out on a trip, a man came running up to Jesus, knelt down and asked him, <sighs> Good teacher, what should I do to get eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But as for your question, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. 
Do not testify falsely. Do not cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was a child. Jesus felt genuine love for this man as he looked at him. You lack only one thing, he told him. Go and sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he he went sadly away because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to get into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to mention all that he and the other disciples had left behind. We have given up everything to follow you, he said. Jesus replied, he said, yes. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake, for the good news, will receive now in return a hundred times over houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, with persecution. And in the world to come, they will have eternal life. But many who seem to be important now will be the least important then. And those who are considered the least here will be the greatest then. Here's the big idea of our message today. In the kingdom of God, power and importance are flipped upside down. Everything's changed. It's just different. It's not intuitive. It's not the way we were brought up. It's not everything that kind of made sense to us before is shifted. So how do I live with that? What am I going to do this week in my life that I can see is going to reflect that truth? Here's our application. Living with kingdom values means valuing the vulnerable. And living a life of sacrifice for others. For others. As we've seen over and over as we've walked forward in, in this series in the Gospel of Mark. This inbreaking kingdom of God is just so radical. And it's just so different. And, and I think there are times we want it to track along with our lifestyle. And we want it to fit in neatly with what we already think and what we already know. And Jesus says, no, I have none of that. 
this is, this is so different. And he just overturns all of our social conventions, everything that harms people, everything that limits who we are as human beings, how we flourish, how we grow, how we know and we're known, how we relate to God, how we love each other. He changes all of that. And we began to understand that entering into the kingdom of God is, it, it isn't maybe what some of us thought, at least what I thought. And this could be a little generational, but I don't think so. We were thought that it was a single occurrence. You see, some of us were told that when you're a child, as you get older, there is a prayer and this prayer is somewhat like, you know, a magic spell that you would see in a Disney movie or Harry Potter. <laughs> and you say this magic prayer, and then you're good. And that's what salvation is. And I understand that a lot of us may have initiated this relationship with Jesus through a prayer. Just like maybe you began your marriage with vows and a person like me saying, I, you know, do you and do you and will you and will you and you do and you kind of seal the deal and, and, uh, and, and you make you know, these, this, this deep, important vow. But that's not marriage, right? That's the wedding. You kind of get that. You know, you kind of get that. And, and I think that's what we do sometimes. And I talked to a gentleman not long ago who is just really, really uninterested in spiritual things, hasn't been for years and years and years and decades of his life, and now he's in trouble physically, and he's kind of wondering, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And I said, well, you know, what about Jesus? And he goes, well, you know, I've never, you know, I've never been to church. I never read or anything like that. He said, but I did pray this prayer when I was a kid, and I've always kind of thought maybe that would, you know, that would do it. And I said, you know what, I can't judge whether that was genuine for you, whether that was real, but i got to tell you, I've got questions. It doesn't make sense to me that you would, you know, on your wedding day get married and then tell your bride, look, this has been, what a great day, I love, what a wedding, huh? That was so good. We came in on budget, which we didn't think would happen, the reception, all of our friends and family. But look, that's it for me. I'm, I'm kind of done here. And uh, I'm actually moving to Juneau, Alaska, and that's where I'm going to spend my life, and I'll never see you again. And, uh, but, wow, what a day. What a day. This is great. Could you turn my suit back in? Because I rented it, and I'm not going to need it anymore. And, you know, because, I, I, you know, God bless. You'd think, you missed the whole point. It's not about the wedding. It's about the marriage. It's about the relationship and about the life. I don't know what you prayed. And I don't know if you're counting on a prayer to save you or if you're counting on Jesus to save you. It's just a, it's a difference there. And that's what Jesus is about to try to get this guy and even his own disciples to understand. It's not just a single you know, occurrence. The adoption of kingdom values and the acceptance of the consequences of that, of participating in Jesus' mission, is a lifelong journey. It's, it's who we become. Everything is different. And that's why Jesus uses this picture of children. He says, they get it. And, and they're just a, a great illustration of, he says, what I'm about to teach you. Because children are so 100% dependent on adults. 
especially on their parents, for everything. For everything. About 90% of the influence in your child's life from birth till about 12, 13, 14, 15 years old is you, the parent. It, it's, and you think, and I know because I'm a, I'm a parent, I'm a, I'm a grandparent, and I think, oh, Lord, this is a lot of pressure. What if I mess it up? What if I make a mistake? There's no second chances. There's no going back. And we, we want to get that right because they're so trusting. They're so dependent. And Jesus says, this is the way we live in the kingdom. We don't come to Jesus and say, well, look, here's what I bring to the table, and I've got some giftedness, I've got some you know, talents and some ideas about this, and I've got you know, my own abilities, and I'm willing to work really, really hard. And if you could just kind of help me over the finish line, that would be really great. Somehow we've gotten that idea about salvation. That's really not what it is. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. You know, it kind of reminds me when my kids were growing up and at, you know, at like my birthday or for Father's Day, they come to you and say, I need some money to go get you a, you know, Father's Day gift. And I'd say, how much do you need? And they'd say, well, how much, what kind of gift do you want? <laughs> I was going to give you 10, but now I may give you 100. I don't know. What do you got in mind? You know, and, in that, and, and as parents, we kind of smile and we think, wow, I resourced that and I did that. And uh, I have a lot of fun with my grandsons. Every year at Christmas, I take them to the Dollar General store and I say, you can, you can buy everybody a gift. You can get anything you want in the store. And sometimes I just take them there for fun and say, you each get five things. It costs me five, 10 bucks for the whole night. I'm done, you know, and... And they love it. They just think, oh, this is so awesome. And I think we're kind of like that a little bit in that we want to bring something to the table. You know, have you ever had your child, like maybe at five or six or seven years old, to tell you their age and so that they're ready? Or even, I'm, I'm going to get on thin ice here, and you guys probably don't like me messing with you. Have you ever gone to your parents and said, look, I'm 16 now. I think I can run my own life. I think I'm 18 now. And you think, oh, don't do, you know, because who, who resources all that? You know, we kind of do that. With, and Jesus is saying, that's not the way it works. In fact, in verse 15, he said, all that children do is receive. They just receive. They just receive. And he said, and that's all I want you to do. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to jump through hoops. Just receive what I'm about to give you. Everything you need to survive, I have. So instead of focusing on human effort and all of our achievements and all of that, the instructions that Jesus gives kind of reminds us that the kingdom is something we're given as a gift, not something we earn our way into. And we also learn... That the kingdom is about living a, a, a life that follows a pattern of sacrifice. You see, that part nobody told me about. They just said, you know, it, it's, and some of you got the hard sell. You know, you're going to die and pro, you're going to go to hell. So, you know, and, and maybe it just scared the life out of you. And so you thought, what's the, how do I pray? What do I do? What do I do next? For some, it was like, here's what you're going to get. Here's the deal. You know, it's kind of laid out like uh, 
you know, a, a salesperson would do. And we'd think, okay, it looks like, it looks like a really good deal. But in the fine print down there is like, oh, and you've got to die to yourself and live for others. What? Nobody told me that at age 11. Nobody told you that at age 12. Jesus keeps bringing us back to this, bringing us back to this again and again. We all come, all of us come to Jesus with just nothing. And we're in total dependence on him. And I know that sounds harder than we think. And some of you have been living for a little while. You realize that's kind of harder than we think. And for others, I, I want us to know, you know what? It's easier than you think. It's, it's, it's a lot easier. We have muddled it up and we've made it so kind of crazy. You know, and each denomination brings something else to the, to the table and go, well, we do it like this. We do it this way and you kind of need to do it our way because we're right in another group. And some of you have grown up in different places and histories and you think, I'm so confused because this is what I was taught. But when I read, it doesn't seem like that's the truth. There's one of the ladies in this uh, Sudanese refugee camp. Her name is Nora. And as an adult, she was handed a Bible. And she said, this is the first time in my life that I've ever held a Bible, that I've ever seen one and touched it. And she began to read that scripture, and she began to talk with some ladies there who were Christian. And here's what she said later that I thought was really interesting. She said, you all think that Muslims are like what you've seen on television or on the news, and we're all just passionately devoted to this cause. And she said, the truth is, we've just never heard the gospel. We've never heard this. She goes, the minute I began to see this, all the pieces fell into place, and I realized, wow. And she, and she gave her life to Jesus. You know, so here's this guy, and he's made his life complicated, but he, do, he gets some things right about it. One thing he does is that, and what we need to do as well, is you go to the right person. You ever go to, you ever be lost somewhere or you're on vacation, you stop and ask somebody and, and, and they tell you, well, you go, you know, and you think, I don't think they know. And so you thank them and you're kind of pretending like you got it, but you're really going to go to somebody else and ask them or you're going to do something different. Go to the right person. And that's what he does in verse 17. The man ran up to Jesus. Stop running to everybody else and everything else. Because you're not going to find what you're looking for. You're not going to find the salvation. He picks the right guy. He gets this right. Luke 18 says that he's a ruler. Matthew 19 says that he was young. So we've always called this guy the rich young ruler. You know, because it just kind of fits. All the gospels come together. I did some research. His name was Ricky. Okay, I just made that up. Okay, but Ricky runs up to Jesus. He's young, he's rich, he's got influence. And the text here in Mark says that Jesus was setting out on a journey. So they've kind of got their backpacks on, they're loaded up, and they've said their goodbyes, and they're starting to leave. And so this guy wants to catch him before he gets out of town. And so he sees Jesus, oh, no, I didn't know he was leaving today. Yeah, that's today. And so he's running after this guy. So he runs up to Jesus. He didn't walk. He didn't walk. And when you get desperate, you run. You know, something important to you, you want to get there, you run. So he ran to Jesus, which would have been very undignified for a guy of his 
you know, social standing and everything, everything who he was. It's just really undignified. He, he, but he wanted to get to Jesus. He's a person of power and influence himself, but he needs answers. So he goes to the right person. The next thing he did that I think was really a move in the right direction is that he asked the right question. You know, sometimes we ask all these silly questions and these things, and I can remember, you know, quizzing my Christian friends and asking them, well, what about this, you know? And I can remember my family members, their big thing was they'd always either go to, are there demons, (laughs) or they would go to the second coming. So how do you think Jesus is coming back? What's that all about? You know, and I think, ah, those are both important, but neither of them have to do with your salvation. I had a guy this week I was in a conversation with, and he asked me, really, like six or eight questions back to back to back. Well, let me ask you this, and then let me ask you that. And it's like we skirt all around the issue. And some of you have said that, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord, what's the deal with mosquitoes? Why, 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 we, why that? Well, what's the thing? Did you invent daylight savings time, or did we do that? You know, what is that? We got all these questions we're going to ask God, and God's going to say, you know what? Is that really important to you now? He asked the right question, and the question he asked, I think, is probably the most significant question in the whole Bible and in, in all of life. His questions really weren't it wasn't a bad question because it's leading in the, in the right direction, but he's, at this point, I tell you, he's on the wrong track, okay? He, he's thinking about this wrongly. Here's what he says. What must I do? What must I do? Tell me what to do. This is my question. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. You know, I'm a fixer. You know, I'm a th- I think, okay, what do we do? What do we do? I want to do something. He goes, no, it's not about doing. He's still thinking This is something I can work for, I can earn, I can figure it out, I can achieve this. So he had to change his theology from doing to done. Instead of something I'm going to get started doing to something that's already been done. Jesus already died on the cross. He already took the penalty for your sins. He already paid the price. You can't add anything to that. There's nothing you're going to do that God's going to say, whoa, I thought that, but I'm kind of impressed with you, so I'm going to give you some extra credit or maybe add to that. It just doesn't work like that. So he had to change from do to done. He had obeyed all these commandments. I mean, he spent his whole life, and just like some of you, you spent your whole life being good. And God bless you. I'm proud, and I think that I'm not against being moral or anything else. However, this guy had been good his whole life. Ever since he was a kid, he'd been keeping all these commandments. He'd been so careful. But here he is. He's grown, and he's keenly aware something is missing in his life. And he's unsure where he's going to spend eternity. He said, I've been, I've been keeping these rules. I've been going to church. I've been doing all this my whole life. And here I am. He's like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. He's this young guy. And he's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven. I don't know. I need to get this right. So he's asking the right question. And when you ask the right question, you need to get the right answer. 
Don't settle for the answer that just sort of fits like, I like that answer. I like that answer. I was talking to someone, um, not here at Calvary, it's in, an, in another place, and I was asking them some questions. They had come to me for counseling, and I said this, and they said, well, that's what my therapist said. And I said, oh, you have a therapist? Yeah, I have a therapist. And I said, I kept going, and they said, well, yeah, that's what my, uh, my other counselor said. I go, wait, how many counselors do you have? They said, counting you? And I said, yes. And they said, four. I said, oh, no, no. <laughs> I said, are you confused? And they said, yes. And I said, yeah, I guess. I said, how do you choose if, if we all give you something different? Well, I just go with what I like. <laughs> I, go, I thought, me too. I'm going to start doing that. You know, well, then you can go home and you can tell your wife, well, my counselor said, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. I think. So this guy, one of the things he gets, he gets the right answer. You know, get the right answer. Keep pushing until you get the right answer. The list of commandments that Jesus gives in verse 19 are kind of, I was curious about it because I thought, wait a minute, that's not all of them that I'm familiar with. You know, like the Big Ten. You know, he says, what's missing? You don't covet. That's in Exodus 20, 17. Don't covet other people's stuff. And he said, you shall not defraud. You know, you you shall not defraud. For a Jewish audience who's well-versed in the law, they knew this, uh, they just, they, they, they knew this, just like you know every SEC team. Um, this exchange wouldn't have gone unnoticed. Oh, he skipped one. No, he skipped something. And I'm going to go out on a limb here just a little bit because we don't have a backstory about this guy. We don't know what happens after this. I have always wondered, you know, toward the end of the Gospels when it says the rich man, I mean, the rich man was in hell and he saw Lazarus and he said, just tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water. I don't know. I've wondered. I wonder if that's the same guy. I don't know. But he skips these. And I don't know who he was, but there's this slight change in the list of commandments that draw attention to a reality. It's not explicitly stated. This man, I don't know. And like I said, I'm reading something into it, but it's very likely that he had to have engaged in some kind of economic exploitation to get where he was. Maybe he used slave labor. Maybe he cheated here. Maybe he did something. He exploited people to get to be where he was. And we read this passage, and I think, well, that's just a guy who was good with money or he hoarded his money or whatever. But I wonder if Jesus is poking at something that's a little deeper. In any case, however he got there, Jesus just skimmed over a couple of things. And sometimes that's what we wish he would do. It's like, yeah, you know, that 10, well, let's just talk about these seven because there's three of them is a little sketchy in, in my life or this one is the one that gives me problem. And this guy had a problem with one thing, with one thing. He was pretty good at keeping rules. And everybody that knew him thought, yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah, he's a stand-up guy. He's a good guy. But that doesn't give you eternal life. You being nice, you being good, that doesn't give you eternal life. Morality is not the same as salvation. There are a lot of good people who don't know Jesus. So I wouldn't count on that. And here's this verse, and this is a verse that just kind of got my attention because I'm sort of a tender-hearted person, you know. But in in verse 21, uh, there's a a version that says, Looking at him, 
Jesus genuinely loved him. So I had to dig into that a little bit. And this word look means that he didn't just glance. There's several different words that could, you know, uh, be correct as far as that verb. So look is good. But it really means he looked at him. Now he looked in his eyes. They locked souls for a moment. And Jesus looked at this guy. And this word love, it's just out of his heart. Jesus looks at him and thinks, I love you so much. And Jesus has looked at me like that. And he's looked at you that way. And you know what that look feels like. When somebody looks at you and you know it's not just words. And Jesus looks at him. And I think it's one of the most touching and beautiful sentences in the Bible. Looking at him, Jesus just thought, I love you. I love you so much. But then, verse 22 is one of the most tragic verses. It says this, At this the man's face fell, for he had many possessions. He's so tied to his position, to his life. He's got it all together. You know, his wealth is the biggest factor. His wealth was his life. That was the big thing. So I think that Jesus probably could have chosen a hundred, you know, twenty different things for twenty different people. But for this guy, it's all about the money. It was about his money. So, so Jesus is not fooling around. He doesn't play games. He doesn't, you know, like, well, let's keep talking about how well you keep commandments and all that. No, he cuts through everything. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. What's the most important thing to you? Oh, that would be your wealth. So let's talk about that. You see, he's not after the guy's money. He's after the guy's heart. And he knows his heart is all tangled up and in bondage. And he's got these chains wrapped all around it. And he needs to be free of that. He needs to be broken free from those chains that are holding him down. Hey, let me ask you, what is your God? What is it that ties you back? Here's the question. What is most valuable to you in your life? Really, what's the most valuable thing to you in your life? That's what Jesus is asking. And when he asks that, it penetrates every area of our life. He doesn't want you to live in a compartmentalized way. He doesn't want you to live like, here's Sunday, that's my like church day, that's my God day, at least half of it. And then here's this Here's another day, you know, but the rest of the days, these are like my day. Now, God just says, hey, I want your heart. I want your heart. See, say it or not say it. That's where your pastor is right now. Say it. Okay. Some of you spend more money on your cable bill than you give to your church. I could say 10 more things just kind of calling you out. And you think, ah, why is he talking about that? Because I'm trying to do the same thing that Jesus is doing. Let's expose our hearts before him. Where is your time, your attention, your thoughts, your resources, your finances? What is the flow of your life? Not your talk, the flow of your life. 
That's where Jesus is going with this guy. And, and as uncomfortable as maybe that makes you feel a little bit. I mean, and I could, I could say, oh, I bet you spend more on your cell phone than you do on Faith Promise. I mean, I could just keep poking. You think, man, he was just so mean to us today. This is how that guy felt. This is how that guy felt when Jesus is coming after him. And, he's, and it, it creates this emotional response. And he goes away sad. It says he goes away really sad. And as he walks away, and he's made this terrible choice, um, and it's one that I can tell you, I can, I can testify, never brings satisfaction, never brings the happiness that you think it's going to bring. Um, and the disciples are just stunned. And they're wondering, what just happened here? That's one of the best guys in our town. And you turned him away. And he goes, well, not really. So if that guy can't be saved, what about me? Who can be saved? No, none of us. Jesus' command to this rich guy is, is radical. I'll tell you, if you've ever read this and you've thought, you know, verse 21 where he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, is that the prerequisite for all of us? Well, no, of course not. That's not what this is about, okay? It, this is not a, that's not the challenge for everybody, but it was for this guy because that was his God. He's saying, will you die to yourself in a tangible, real way? Sell everything. And it's even preceded with compassion where Jesus looks at him with love. Because what Jesus knows is what's in this guy's heart is that you know, his wealth, and that, that that wealth is never going to satisfy him. The exploitation, however he got there, and whatever keeps him there that requires him to continue to accumulate wealth, that's just going to eat at him for the rest of his life. And he loves him, he loves you, he loves me too much to ask anything less of him than a total rejection of his old way of life. Being a disciple, living in the kingdom, is a lifestyle that is not a one-time event. This story shows the difficulty of giving up a form of life for another, from one way of living. When I came to Christ, I had to make very specific, you know, definite choices. I tried to figure out ways where I could keep doing this, you know, and then and have Jesus too and just sort of blend him in. And he's like, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. You got to walk away. You got to turn around. That's called repentance. He said, you need to step out of that and into Jesus. And just keep running like this guy. Just keep running deeper into Jesus. And I think this shows a difficulty in that. Even though we know it's infinitely better, there's a reluctance on our part. And maybe as I've even spoken today, or as you read this text, you think, well, for me it's not money, but it's this. Or for me it is money. Or for me it's, there's something. You think, there's just one thing. Or there's two, and this is what's tying me down from living in the kingdom. I love that in verse 28, Peter said, and I think it sounds like he was in frustrated, you know, play. He was just in defeat. And he just kind of throws up his hands and says, we've left everything to follow you. Like, what else do you want? And in another version I read where Jesus said, yes. I think he just looked at Peter and said, I know that. I get that. And I love that about you, Peter. You got, you've all followed me. And you've all left everything behind. 
And you're going to be rewarded for that. You're going to be blessed. You're never going to regret doing that. I know you're sincere. I see your heart. And I know you've already done what the rich young man couldn't do. You've been willing to let go of your life and take on my life. In verse 30, though, Jesus says, you're going to have all of that, but you're also going to have persecution. You ever think, why did he throw that in? You know, you could have gone on day. We were starting to feel a little better about our situation. And then you throw in, oh, yeah, however, you're going to be, like, really persecuted. In fact, all of these guys but one are going to die from persecution. So Jesus throws that in. You know, and, and I got to thinking about this, and I got to thinking about my life and about your life. It's kind of like a train track. Now, as I was a kid, I, there was train tracks, there were woods behind my house, and then there was a train track. And at my grandparents' house, there was a train track that ran, like, right behind their house. And this game we would play, and don't, don't play this, this is like a foolish game, but we would see, it's a contest between boys, we would see who could stand closest to the track. And when the train came by, who could stand the closest without flinching? I know, fun way to spend a summer afternoon. And we'd hear the train, and you'd decide, and then you'd mark, you know, where you stood. And then the next guy would come up and see if he could stand there, or he would go an inch closer. And I'll never forget one day, standing so close, I thought, if anything is sticking out, it's going to hit me. And I just stood there, and I'm scared to death, and I'm shaking. You feel the ground start moving first, and then you hear it, and it's so loud, and it's coming right at you. And I could feel the wind of it, and I'm just standing there thinking, I'm going to die. I'm 12 years old. My life is over. I'm dying. I'm going to be hit by a train. And I, For what? Because of my pride. Because it's better to die being hit by a train than it is to step back and to hear Randy Lovins go, Ooh, oh, chicken, yeah. You. I thought, no, I'd just rather die. <laughs> so life is like train rails. It's, it's, it's like two rails. And here's what these two rails are. They run parallel. They always run side by side. One is battles, and the other is blessings. One is battles, and one is blessings. And some of you right now, you're in the midst of terrible battles. But also, there's beautiful blessings. And they just run together. I've noticed that my whole life is that it's always battles and it's blessings. That's the pattern of my life. They both happen together and often usually at the same time. The battles teaches humility and the blessings teaches gratitude. Now, I was going to read this, but I think I'm just going to refer to it. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, Paul said, We're pressed, we're pushed. We're hammered. We've been beat up. We've had all these terrible things happen to us again and again and again. He said, but even facing death, this has resulted in eternal life. And in the next verses, he said, we know that Jesus is raised, you know, that God's raised Jesus from the dead, and he's going to raise us. And whatever we face, however hard it gets, whatever the battles are, there's going to be blessings. And he said, and in the midst of that, God is going to receive more and more glory from our life. Verse 31 says this. The first 
shall be last and the last shall be first. And he just kind of sums it up. He just sort of brings it back together and he says, I know when you stepped into this moment, you had your ideas about what it meant to be in the kingdom of God, what it meant to be saved, what it meant to know Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm turning that around. I'm shaking that out because the powerful will be weak. The weak will be powerful. The rich will be poor. The poor will be rich. You know, and and when, when this young man heard this concept, it made him really sad because he didn't want to give away his life to get Jesus. He declined the promise, what he was asking for, eternal life. And while all these good people, these disciples, reasonable religious adults were shooing away children, you know, Jesus says, stop, because they're the models for how to be a grown-up. And so this, this story, this historical event of this rich man reminds us of the high cost of discipleship. And that short little verse at the end, first will be last and the last will be first holds the promise that that high cost is worth it it's worth it so where's your God what are you holding on to it's keeping you tied down it's keeping you from breaking through this beautiful life Jesus' life, His kingdom. And my ask, you know, my challenge is pretty simple. Are you willing to risk it? Are you willing to let go of it? I can imagine if this guy looked back at everything he had, all of his accounts, his camels, you know, his robes, his chariots, whatever, all the stuff... He just thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to let it go. I've been there. I've been in that moment where your heart, instead of the direction you think it's going to go, where you go, oh, no, I just lost everything. No, it just goes. <gasps> just something beautiful begins to take place in your life and your heart. And you don't go away sad. You go away what was I thinking that that was going to do it for me? What is it you've got to let go of? It could be a sin. It could be, I don't know what it is, standing between you and Jesus. I hope you let go of it today. Watch what he does next with your life.